This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It was just 8 o'clock in the morning on November 21st, 1916, and Violet Jessup already feared that today would be her last. She had been enjoying breakfast on the HMHS Britannic when the sound of an explosion blasted through the dining hall. A nervous chatter spread. The crew vanished to their posts without a word. Some patrons assumed the sound was just a bit of engine trouble, a minor distraction amid an otherwise quiet voyage. But Violet Jessup knew better. She recognized the dull, deafening roar of exploding steel and the unmistakable shudder of the ship's hull. She had lived with those sounds echoing in her mind since the Titanic shipwreck four years earlier. And now, it was happening all over again. Just moments later, Violet was shepherded into an escape raft, slowly creaking down the Britannic side. It happened so fast, she was still dazed as the raft touched down into the freezing water. So dazed, in fact, that she hardly noticed as her fellow passengers began to scream and leap out of the lifeboat. Her fugue state was shattered when she realized just one other passenger remained on the lifeboat. And when she looked over her shoulder, she saw why. The raft was headed straight into the Britannic's propellers. Violet began to wonder if any luck she might have had in this life died aboard the Titanic. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our second of two episodes on Violet Jessup, the only woman to survive the Olympic, Titanic, and Britannic shipwrecks. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parkcast.com slash merch for more information. As dawn approached in the early hours of April 15th, 1912, Violet Jessup sat huddled inside a lifeboat with her fellow Titanic escapees. It had only been a few hours since they'd watched the unsinkable ship collapse into the ocean, disappearing in an explosion of steel and water. The sea was choppy, waves crashing along the boat's side and soaking its passengers in freezing water. If Violet had ever been this cold before, she couldn't remember it. Between the water and the bone-chilling ocean breeze, she was so consumed by the fear of freezing to death that it was difficult to focus on anything else. Her mind kept drifting back to those who hadn't been able to secure a spot on one of the lifeboats. Many had died aboard the sinking ship, and many more had frozen to death in the Atlantic's icy waters. But Violet shuddered to think about just how massive the loss of life had been. The only thing keeping Violet from falling into a catatonic state was the baby she'd been entrusted with. She didn't know whose baby it was or whether its parents had made it off the ship alive, but she clutched the infant to her chest, doing whatever she could to protect it as the raft rocked on the waves. A confluence of events had made Violet's lifeboat particularly ill-suited to surviving a night at sea. Of the Titanic's 20 lifeboats, 16 of them were solid wood, each with a capacity of 65 passengers. Four more were collapsible canvas and wood boats, capable of holding only 47 passengers. The ship also carried two small emergency cutters, each of which could carry 40 passengers. Violet had been fortunate enough to find herself in one of the more sturdy, solid wood lifeboats, but that was where her luck ran out. In the chaos of the Titanic's evacuation, the escape craft had been filled with few able-bodied men capable of using one of the boat's ten oars, making it difficult to maneuver in the rough ocean water. In an act of undeniable bravery, the men aboard the Titanic had prioritized the evacuation of women and children. Unfortunately, this meant that few of the people aboard the escape craft were physically fit enough to row the boat. While women are perfectly capable of heavy physical labor, biology puts them at a disadvantage. In 1999, a study of 468 men and women, published in the Journal of Applied Physiology, found that the women surveyed had about 40% less upper body muscle mass than their male counterparts, relative to each subject's overall body mass. Violet's lifeboat carried only six men and dozens of women unaccustomed to physical labor. They likely would have required at least eight strong crew members to steer the overloaded craft. To make matters worse, Violet and company had no light, no food, and no fresh water. In the back of her mind, Violet wondered how the emergency boat could lack such basic essentials. Typically, lifeboats were subject to inspection to ensure they were outfitted with enough sustenance to survive at least a single night at sea. However, Due to a fear that passengers would steal the supplies, survival rations were kept locked away on the deck, not on the lifeboats themselves. 
Violet saw no use in voicing her qualms. She was too busy trying to stay awake, afraid that if she dared to close her eyes, she might never open them again. As dawn breached the horizon, Violet searched for any sign of a rescue vessel, but no ships were in sight. In fact, there was no sign of life for as far as the eye could see. Massive icebergs surrounded the boat on either side, and the Titanic's other lifeboats, which had taken off at the same time, were nowhere to be seen. Some of the male passengers tried to keep the women and children in good spirits by singing a few tunes, but their lips were too frozen to move, and the music soon petered out, leaving Violet's mind to wander. She thought back to the piano she had decided to purchase before boarding the Titanic. Owning a piano had long been a dream of hers, but it was only just before her April departure that she finally pulled the trigger and paid the first installment. As the lifeboat drifted in tense silence, Violet marveled at just how frivolous the purchase seemed now. Violet snapped out of her daze when a passenger bolted upright and pointed a shaky finger toward a dark speck on the horizon, a ship heading straight towards the lifeboat. As the ship drew closer, many of the passengers surrounding Violet began to weep tears of joy. The woman seated next to her, who had kept her face buried in her arms since she'd been forced to abandon her husband and two sons on the Titanic, finally looked up with hopeful jubilance. But this hope spurred a troubling thought in Violet's mind. She knew that many of the women she was seated with had been forced to leave their families behind. Violet wondered if perhaps a part of them still hoped that the past night had been nothing more than a fever dream, and the ship headed towards them was the Titanic, coming back to retrieve its passengers and continue the voyage. As the ship drew closer and its shape came clearer into view, Violet watched as the hope drained from the woman's eyes. There would be no reunions today. Violet knew she should have been happy to see the RMS Carpathia coming nearer, but a part of her couldn't help but feel a sense of dread as their rescue became a certainty. The idea of having to recount her harrowing escape sent a chill down her spine. Crewmen of the RMS Carpathia lowered a ladder down into the water, and the lifeboat passengers quickly scampered aboard. Still carrying the unidentified baby in her arms, Violet ascended the ladder with great care, careful not to startle the child. Violet and her fellow passengers barely climbed aboard before members of the Carpathia's crew poured glasses of neat brandy down their throats. Though the drink sent a warmth coursing through Violet's chest, it did little to calm her racing mind. Amid the frenetic activity, Violet barely noticed as a woman rushed over and snatched the infant from her arms. Without a word, the woman ran off, leaving a shell-shocked Violet staring after her. The question of why the child's mother, or at least she hoped it was its mother, had run off without so much as a word of gratitude would nag at Violet until her dying day. A member of the Carpathia crew filled Violet in on how they happened upon the lifeboat. 
Shortly before the Titanic had sunk into the ocean, it had sent out a distress signal over the radio. In the early 1900s, Morse code was still a burgeoning technology, and there was no standardized distress call for marine communications. The code SOS was adopted as the international standard in 1908, but British ships still tended to use a different code, CQD. The Titanic's radio operator, Jack Phillips, had first broadcast the letters CQD, but his junior operator suggested switching to the new code, joking in their final moments that it might be his first and last chance to use it. This turned out to be a smart decision. Due to technical problems, a few ships misheard the CQD as simply CQ, which is a common call used for non-urgent matters. There was initially some confusion aboard the Carpathia about whether the Titanic was in distress or not. But after hearing the alternating CQD and SOS, the crew knew it was serious. Violet's lifeboat had been the last of the Titanic's 20 lifeboats to be spotted by the Carpathia. Hundreds of fleeing passengers had already filled the deck by the time Violet climbed aboard, but hundreds upon hundreds more were nowhere to be found. The Carpathia crew tried to calm the distressed survivors by reminding them that many ships had heard the distress signal from the sinking Titanic, and other ships had likely rescued even more passengers. But as Violet searched the deck for familiar faces and came up empty, she couldn't help but wonder if any of her fellow crewmates had made it off the ship. After a vigilant, day-long effort, the Carpathia abandoned its search and headed for port in New York. They had rescued over 700 Titanic survivors, but few aboard would have called the rescue a success. Too many lives still remained unaccounted for. At dusk on April 18, 1912, the Carpathia drifted into port along New York's Hudson River. A crowd of excited onlookers awaited them. News of the Titanic's crash had already reached shore. Many in the crowd shouted inquiries about their loved ones across the water, cementing in the minds of the passengers that their worst fears had been realized. No other ship had found a soul. They were the only survivors. Once the Carpathia arrived in port, New Yorkers were eager to do what they could for the survivors. That included collecting clothes and food and offering to show them around the city. For the next few days, there was no bigger story in the world than the Titanic. Headlines detailing harrowing survivals and tragic, untimely death dominated the pages of nearly every New York newspaper. Complete strangers tried to arrange lectures for some of the survivors, providing a platform to tell their stories. Violet abhorred the publicity. The idea of recounting what had been the worst night of her young life for the public's entertainment was simply too much for her to bear. Psychologists might ascribe her aversion to discussing the events of the crash as survivor's guilt, which often manifests in people who have survived life-threatening situations where others were not as lucky. While Violet made it to shore, many of her friends and co-workers had not. It felt wrong to her to discuss her survival as a triumph when it was so tied up in grief for those she'd lost. Soon after her arrival in New York, 
Violet returned home to Southampton, England via the SS Lapland. The prospect of traversing the open sea again was a stressful prospect for Violet and many of her fellow Titanic survivors, but there was no other choice. Fortunately for the traumatized passengers, the Lapland's captain chose to follow a southerly route to avoid passing the spot where the Titanic wreck had occurred. Once back in Southampton, Violet and the rest of the survivors tried as best they could to put the wreck behind them. For the 212 total surviving crew and the many families who lost loved ones, the pain of rebuilding their lives was helped in part by charitable funds raised by the subscribers of the London newspaper The Daily Telegraph, by Lord Mayor Sir Thomas Bore Crosby and other powerful political figures. Other newspapers in the surrounding areas conducted similar drives, in addition to publishing articles that called for a reevaluation of maritime safety standards. Crosby, however, would pull through for the families, raising 417,000 British pounds, nearly 60 million American dollars today, from royal figures throughout England, including the king and queen. Despite the financial help, Violet knew that if she didn't get back to work soon, she never would. She was a woman of the ocean, and if she allowed her fear to fester, it was liable to consume her whole. Violet had long been terrified of the open waters. In fact, she had an irrational fear of drowning, a fear that was largely unabated by the thousands of hours she'd spent at sea. But she had never allowed that fear to keep her landlocked. She loved the smell of ocean air, the feeling of the misty breeze at her back, and the still calmness of the open horizon. That's why, only two weeks after the Titanic crash, Violet got back to work aboard the RMS Malva. She had decided to change companies, a fresh start that she hoped would not include any further tragedies. But unfortunately for Violet, the powers of nature were far from finished with her. Coming up, we'll explore Violet Jessup's harrowing journey aboard the HMHS Britannic. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In November of 1915, World War I was firmly underway. The RMS Britannic the third of the White Star Line's Olympic-class cruise liners had, for more than a year, been operating along the same Southampton to New York route as its Olympic and Titanic predecessors. But the ship's commercial cruising days were put on hold when it was requisitioned by the British Admiralty for use as a hospital ship. The ship was even given a new name to denote its service to the war effort, the RMS Britannic became the HMHS Britannic, the new prefix crowning the cruise liner as Her Majesty's Hospital Ship. By November of 1916, the Britannic had already made five successful voyages to the Middle Eastern Theater, 
transporting sick and injured troops away from the battlefield and back home to Britain. The circumstances surrounding Violet Jessup's arrival aboard the Britannic remain largely a mystery. Violet herself remained coy about how, when, and why she came to serve on yet another White Star Line sister ship. But when she arrived, she found that life aboard the Britannic was incredibly regimented. Patients were woken up at 6.30 each morning, at which time the quarters were cleaned vigorously to scrub away any chance of infection. In a contained area like the Britannic, illnesses spread like wildfire. A particularly deadly strain of a virus like influenza could kill hundreds of the ship's thousand-plus passengers before they made it to shore. That's why the ship's captain, Captain Charles Alfred Bartlett, inspected the ship's cleanliness himself each morning at dawn. Lunch followed just after 12 noon. The patients received treatment for their various injuries and illnesses throughout the afternoon. Tea came at 4.30, and the patients were put to bed at 8.30. Once everyone was in bed, Captain Bartlett conducted his second inspection of the day before retiring to his quarters to rest for what would assuredly be an identical day to follow. It wasn't just disease that Captain Bartlett was wary of. He knew full well about the tragedy of the Titanic, the Britannic's predecessor. Harland and Wolfe, the same Belfast shipyard responsible for the construction of both the Olympic and Titanic, handled the construction of the Britannic. Their designs changed significantly in the months following the Titanic crash. This included lengthening the ship's beam to allow for a double hull, which would make the ship more sturdy, as well as altering the design of the watertight central compartments, which had flooded in both the Titanic and Olympic collisions. But the Britannic's most notable change came by way of its lifeboats. In the wake of the Titanic disaster, the British and American boards of inquiry instituted policies mandating lifeboat inspections and drills prior to a ship's launch. The Britannic met all the new regulations and then some. Even the most ill-informed passengers would notice the motor-operated davits along the edge of the deck. These crane-like structures allowed six lifeboats to be launched at a time with relative ease. In total, the Britannic carried 55 lifeboats, each capable of carrying 75 people. This was a far cry from the meager 20 lifeboats carried aboard the Titanic. One message was clear to anyone who stepped aboard. The Britannic would not repeat the mistakes of its forebears. But for all its innovations and improvements, the Britannic's designers could never have prepared the vessel for all the unexpected dangers of the wartime sea. The morning of November 21, 1916, began just as any other morning. The Britannic was passing through the Kea Channel, just south of Greece, en route home to the United Kingdom. The nurses raised the patients from their beds at 6.30. Captain Bartlett made his usual rounds, inspecting the deck, hospital quarters, and engine rooms to ensure all was running smoothly. Much of the crew, including Violet Jessup, spent the morning in the ship's chapel. The priest addressed the congregation in his thick Irish brogue, exalting the virtues of a faithful life. After Mass, 
Most of the crew went to the dining room for breakfast. It was as jovial and merry an atmosphere as Violet could ever remember at sea. Then, suddenly, the roar of a deep metallic explosion echoed through the dining room. The hull of the ship seemed to shudder. Violet hopped to her feet, scanning the faces of her fellow diners for confirmation that they had heard the same thing. The ship's doctors and nurses leapt into action, sprinting for their posts without hesitation. Nobody could be sure what they just heard. Some cited the relatively low volume of the noise as evidence that the Britannic had merely struck a smaller ship. But Violet knew better. She had been haunted by enough shipwrecks to know trouble when she heard it. Inside the command bridge, Captain Bartlett's mind was racing. One look at the ship's starboard side revealed the scope of the damage. The ship was sinking fast. No one knew precisely what had caused the explosion, but this was war, and passengers and crewmen alike feared they had been attacked by an unseen enemy. Captain Bartlett didn't have time to hypothesize. Immediately, he ordered a distress signal be sent out to any ships in the area. A number of ships in the area received the SOS signal and changed course towards the Britannic, but Captain Bartlett and his crew didn't hear any response over the radio. They had no way of knowing help was on the way. Unbeknownst to them, the explosion had caused the ship's antenna wires to snap. They were still able to broadcast, but they were incapable of receiving communications from other ships. As the lower chambers of the ship began to flood, Captain Bartlett realized disaster was inevitable. The boiler room surrounding the ship's engine had already been evacuated, meaning that in a matter of only around 10 minutes, the Britannic was in the same dire position the Titanic had been in close to an hour after its collision. As Violet sprinted down the hall to her room, she passed open door after open door. In each room, nurses and crewmen hurried to stuff their valuables into their pockets. Violet reached her room to find a delicious breakfast spread sitting atop her bunk, left there by her well-intentioned roommate. But Violet had no time for breakfast. She grabbed everything she would need for an evacuation, her warmest coat, her prayer book, and her toothbrush. She had made the mistake of forgetting her toothbrush during her escape from the Titanic and had been forced to endure the added torture of an unwashed mouth until she arrived in New York. Of all the lessons Violet had learned from her harrowing escape, the one that stood out the most in the moment was to never flee a sinking ship without packing a toothbrush. As Violet stepped out onto the deck, she became keenly aware of her complete and total absence of fear. The worries that had haunted nearly every moment of her sea life since the Titanic crash had suddenly dissipated. Some psychologists might attribute this to acclimation, the idea that repeated exposure to similar situations leads to familiarity. This familiarity greatly reduces biological fear responses. Acclimation serves as the basis for some phobia treatments, allowing individuals to slowly minimize their fear response to specific stimuli by making them feel familiar. Violet was facing her third oceanic disaster in five years, 
it's likely that her familiarity allowed her to operate under the intense pressure of the Britannic's evacuation with unparalleled resolve. The first thing Violet noticed when she stepped out onto the deck was that people were missing. The Britannic had been carrying over a thousand total passengers, and Violet could tell immediately that a significant portion weren't on deck. When she inquired about the missing passengers, an officer pointed out over the edge of the ship. Violet squinted, blinded by the blazing sun, before noticing a trail of lifeboats already lagging behind the ship. The Britannic crew had wasted no time in deploying the lifeboats, but the ship was still humming along at close to 10 knots, making a safe deployment all the more difficult. One lifeboat caught Violet's attention. The boat had just been lowered into the icy water when it suddenly lurched forward into the pull of the Britannic's swirling propellers. Violet watched in horror as the lifeboat was dragged into the swirling blades. She closed her eyes, but it was too late. The horrifying image of the splintered wood and mangled bodies would never leave her mind. Still paralyzed by shock, Violet was shepherded into a lifeboat and lowered into the water. The oarsmen began to paddle away from the Britannic, but the boat refused to break free from the larger ship's side. Violet watched in a daze as every man in the surrounding lifeboats leapt into the water. They splashed down into the ocean with a thud, one after the other, the sound almost soothing in its monotony. Before long, Violet looked around to find that only she and one other man remained in her lifeboat. When Violet turned, she saw the reason why. Just a few yards separated Violet's boat from the Britannic's churning propellers. By the time she realized just how dire her situation was, her fellow holdout had already jumped into the water. Violet's irrational fear of drowning was back, but she realized she had no choice. It was jump or die. When we come back, we'll explore how Violet Jessup survived her third shipwreck and readjusted to post-disaster life. Now back to this story of survival. As the Britannic's propellers loomed closer, Violet Jessup leapt out of her lifeboat and into the ocean. She was sinking, descending deeper and deeper into the freezing water, too terrified to even open her eyes. As the surface grew further and further away, Violet had a sudden realization. She had never been underwater before. It took Violet a moment to realize why she was sinking so quickly. Her heavy coat was weighing her down. Panic setting in, she shook free of her jacket and thrashed up through the water. It wasn't until Violet smacked the top of her head against the base of a lifeboat that she realized she'd reached the surface. Still too frightened to open her eyes, she swam out from under the boat, reached up for help, grasped hold of someone's arm, and lunged toward the open air. When she opened her eyes, it took all that she had not to scream. The arm she had grabbed was not attached to a torso. All around her, limbs were scattered. A decapitated head floated past. 
All Violet could do was paddle to stay afloat. Just up ahead, she watched the Britannic collapse into the ocean. She was alone, struggling against the turbulent ocean waves, out in the open water for the first and possibly last time in her life. And then she heard a sound. A number of the Britannic's lifeboats had been equipped with electric motors. Violet saw one speeding towards her. Before she knew it, she was being herded onto the lifeboat. When she tried to stand, she found that her leg had been badly wounded. A deep gash ran along her thigh, making it difficult to move without igniting a sudden shooting pain. As the boat headed for refuge on the tiny Greek island of Kea, Violet began to question whether she was some sort of bad luck charm, guaranteeing a tragic fate to whatever ship she worked on. Maybe it was finally time to put her stewardess uniform away for good. In total, 30 lives were lost in the Britannic crash, making it a relative footnote after the catastrophic fatalities of the Titanic. But the brutality of many of those deaths made the disaster singular in its trauma for those lucky enough to survive. The cause of the explosion was attributed to a mine hidden in the ocean water. For all his constant inspections of the ship, Captain Bartlett could never have known the mine had been waiting beneath the surface. After the crash, Violet remained landbound. She took a job with a bank in London. Math had always been her favorite subject, and she figured she might as well put her wits to good use. She was first placed in the credit department, but much to her dismay, she discovered that she was inexplicably no longer capable of computing even the simplest arithmetic. An X-ray revealed that, in addition to her leg injuries, Violet had suffered a fractured skull. The injury had gone undetected in the days after the crash, and by now, it had been untreated for close to a year. Doctors told her she was fortunate that the fracture hadn't affected her memory. They were hopeful that, in time, her computing skills would eventually return on their own. They didn't. Violet spent the next four years working at the bank in a department that didn't require much counting. It was a living, but for a thrill-seeker like Violet, it was miserable. After four years on dry land, in June of 1920, she was ready to return to the sea. The RMS Olympic, the first ship on which she'd survived a near-deadly collision close to a decade earlier, had shed its wartime camouflage and been recommissioned for passenger service across the Atlantic. Violet returned to her stewardess job more than willingly. Though a part of her had enjoyed working for the bank, she had grown restless the longer she was confined to land. The sea beckoned her, and despite its terrors, Violet yearned to bask in its bliss. But the Violet that returned to service was decidedly different from the one who had left the Britannic. She carried herself with the confidence of a woman who had stared death in the face and lived to gloat about it. Where Violet had once carried a certain bitterness toward her profession, the low pay, the long hours, the abhorrent behaviors of so many guests, her time away from sea had renewed an affection for her craft. It certainly beats sitting at a desk, struggling to compute math problems. 
Violet Jessup served aboard passenger cruise vessels until 1950, when, at the age of 63, she finally retired to the village of Great Ashfield in the United Kingdom. Pensionless and past the stewardess age limit for most passenger cruise liners, Violet was once again forced into unconventional work. She raised hens, selling their eggs to pay for her and her elderly mother's expenses. It was a quiet life. The adventures and tragic disasters of her youth, now little more than a distant memory. But Violet had few complaints. After all, she had seen more excitement than most people could hope for in a lifetime. Even in her idyllic retirement, Violet's adventurous past continued to follow her. Sometime in 1970, a phone call aroused an 82-year-old Violet Jessup on an otherwise sleepy, stormy evening. When she answered the phone, a woman's voice greeted her. The voice asked, Is this Violet Jessup, who was a stewardess on the Titanic and rescued a baby? Violet answered, Yes, it is. Who is this and what do you want? The caller delivered a response that nearly made Violet's knees buckle in shock. I was the baby. Before Violet could even muster an answer, the woman hung up. When Violet told a friend about the call, the friend attributed it to a prank by local kids. But Violet scoffed. She claimed she had never told another soul about saving the baby. She was absolutely certain that the woman she had spoken to was, in fact, the baby she had rescued from the Titanic. Violet would never receive a conclusive answer either way. In May of 1971, close to a year later, she died of congestive heart failure at the age of 83. For all the moments of certain death that Violet Jessup faced in her service aboard the Olympic, Titanic, and Britannic, her nerves never failed her. Few could have survived the tragedies she faced, and fewer still could have moved past them enough to continue on with a career at sea. Violet Jessup was one of a kind, and not only in her unfortunate affinity for finding herself at the center of oceanic tragedies, but also in her eternal optimism that, despite her past tragedies, the next voyage would be better. She was a survivor, drawn to an ocean seemingly hell-bent on taking her life. And even close to 60 years after her first brush with death, Violet never soured on her one true love, the open ocean and all the horrors and joys that came with it. Thank you for listening to Survival. You can find more episodes of Survival and all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Maggie Admire. 
Survival is written by Daniel Ocho and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson.